0: All right, you guys, our topic for the winter retreat this year is considering the canons. uh, That's one and not two, like the weapon, the canons of Dort, which I understand is probably something that most of you guys have never heard of. But what it is, is an important document that was drafted in response to a movement within the church dating back all the way to 1618 in the Netherlands. And so what we're doing this weekend with our time then is a little bit of historical theology. In other words, we're considering Christian doctrine and theology in light of how it developed and was discovered or recognized throughout the course of history. Historical theology serves as a guide in ministry, but all the doctrines of the Bible, all the doctrines that are contained in Scripture, they're found there in the Bible for us, in the Word of God, Certainly, and scriptural exegesis is what binds our conscience. Not historical theology, but historical theology is helpful to us. Um, What historical theology does is it considers how those doctrines of the Bible were confirmed and recognized over the course of history. And it's usually happening in light of people who would teach something from the Bible that's contrary to what the whole of Scripture is communicating. They would use the Scriptures to make a point but it was a point that was out of step with what the rest of the Bible is teaching. And so what a study like this will help us to remember, I hope, is that Christianity and that we are part of the one true religion of the world. When someone hears the gospel and responds in faith to Christ, they become part of the church, the people of God. And that goes all the way back to the very beginning, to creation, to the Garden of Eden, and then the fall and the promise of the gospel that came at that time. But, You know, it's not very uncommon for people to think or at least act like Christianity came into existence about five minutes after they were saved. But that's not the case. As if anyone is able to approach the Bible without any presuppositions or without the benefit of what's come before. It's impossible to do that. And it would seem that God didn't intend for that to be the case as well. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, and he is the firm foundation of her teachings. And he instructed the apostles to build upon that foundation by the Spirit through the instruction that Christ gave them. And the apostles then repeatedly tell us in their letters to defend the faith. And the reality is that that God has been saving people for generations. And false teaching, even false teaching that claimed to be based upon God's word, would come into the church And it would often need to be reconciled with against what the Bible said. And people would come around and rally around what the Bible says and the doctrines that it teaches to confirm the truth. And that's what we have happening with the canons of Dort. It's interesting, to me at least, if you like track church history, um, especially like from the book of Acts and Pentecost, you see even in the book of Acts that false teaching arises and the church responds. And then early on through 500 AD, the church would defend the doctrines of the church against false teaching, and you have the formulation of the creeds, the early creeds like the Apostles' Creed, the Chalcedon Creed, the Nicene Creed, in light of the false teaching that arose from within the church. And it wasn't perfect by any means, but after 500 AD, things kind of shifted in a way. Um, the false teaching became more dominant. In the church by and large, and then about 1000 AD, the church split over a Trinitarian distinction, leaving an Eastern church and a Western church, with the Western church eventually becoming, or eventually being known as the Catholics, and the Eastern church holding on to this name of Orthodox. But those religions, both the Catholics and the Orthodox, are and were perversions of true Christianity, and in the West things continue to get worse. That is, up until the Reformation, where there was once again another split. And from the Reformation, the fruit of the Reformation there in the 16th century, um, from that would come the Canons of Dort. Richard Mueller, who is a scholar, and he's especially knowledgeable in the time period known as the Scholastics, which is a time period post-Reformation, He said that after the Reformation, Protestant theology was no longer interested in reforming a church, but rather in establishing and protecting the church. And the Reformation intended to correct doctrinal errors and abuses. And by the grace of God, the success of that movement virtually demanded that Protestant theologians affirm what was truly orthodox and to create confessions based on them, not only to stand against what was now known as the Roman Catholics, but even against errors that would come up in the church. And they would, they would defend them. So the church, by the grace of God, went from reforming back to defending in the span of about a hundred years, which is truly a mercy of the Lord. And that brings us to the Canons of Dort, which was a synod held at Dort in Netherlands. A synod is just like a religious meeting of, of pastors and church leaders where they would come together to make a decision. And the meeting of that church came about to defend what was recaptured at the Reformation. Because like always, error in the church was arising. And the church must do this sort of thing, especially pastors and elders. They, they must do this sort of thing. This is explicit in the pastoral epistles. So if you have your Bible, you can look at 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, 1-4. through This is one of three short letters that Paul wrote to up-and-coming evangelists and, and pastors. Timothy, we believe, was a, an evangelist, properly speaking. The second Timothy 4, 1-4 through four says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Then listen, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching and why verse three for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths to to myths, to to false teaching, to things not true, but things that might sound true, to things which may have a kernel of truth in them, but which end up deceiving the untrained. And so pastors and elders are charged by the apostle to give a defense for the faith. And it's not arrogant or prideful to do so. Uh, If you turn over to the next chapter, to Titus, to the next book, I should say, Titus one seven through eleven there he says, for an overseer, an overseer is just another term for a shepherd, a pastor in the church. He says, for an overseer is God as God's steward, must be above reproach. he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled. Upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So, in other words, not loosely or without conviction, but with firmness. And then, reason being, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, whereas a pastor should not be arrogant, and remember, the quality of those men should also be sought by everyone in the church, right? He who desires to be a, an, an elder, an overseer, desires a good thing. Even though they're not to be arrogant, it is not arrogance to assert that some teaching is wrong and to hold firmly to the trustworthy word as action requires it. And then Titus 1 goes on to say, For there are many, in verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers. And then he gives a a specific example, especially those of the circumcision party. These were Jewish believers who were wanting to take the church back into old covenant laws. But notice what he says about those who need to be rebuked. And listen, that doesn't necessarily mean they were unsaved. They can simply be wrong and what we would call heterodox, unorthodox, which could lead to heresy. But just because someone is wrong and in need of correction doesn't mean that they're not saved. And For example, just think of Peter, right? Paul ends up having to rebuke Peter. Peter maybe the most important apostle, the main apostle at the time when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. There was a time period when Peter was influenced by some other people and he was in error. He was wrong. He was a part of false teaching and the apostle Paul had to rebuke him. So just because you're wrong about something doesn't mean that you're not saved. Otherwise, we would think the apostle Peter wasn't saved and that would be ludicrous and silly. But then, verse 11, they must be silenced, these people who are teaching falsely, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So it is right to defend the truth of the faith from all kinds of attacks. And knowing our history as a church, and this is our history, when we think of something like the canons of Dort, this is part of all of our history. Uh, it's going to help in that because what ends up happening is the same kind of errors are routinely appearing today, but with slight variations. And the canons of Dort are about a theological debate that still goes on today, but in most cases it's not exactly the same. There's a lot of confusion about the sides and the points, so I'm hoping that considering the canons of Dort uh, this weekend will help to clear those things up. And so I'm speaking about the debate known as Calvinism versus Arminianism. But as I was saying, it's not exactly the same today. Arminianism is an error that existed in Reformed churches that weren't called Calvinists back then. In fact, Calvinists and Arminians had an, a lot had a lot in agreement, uh, but a debate engaged over the nature of predestination and salvation between them. But today, you don't really see a lot of issues playing out just like it did, you know, nearly 400 years ago, or a little bit over 400 years ago, actually. And so granted, there are what we would call Arminian churches today, or ones that are influenced by it, but there's a lot more to Calvinism than just the issues that were debated back then. And today, what you really see are churches who have various things in common, and they end up arguing over the particulars of Calvinism. But what is most common is for Baptistic churches to accept either like two or three points of what we call Calvinism, and we'll get to what that is. And then they would reject either two or three other points. They're part Calvinist, but it would seem, and this is just my hunch, I guess, but it would seem that they don't think deeply about their doctrine of theology, and they end up accidentally being contradictory then. And I think what most churches do who are like this is, sadly, they end up, being satisfied with teaching a man-centered, moralistic, therapeutic deism sermon instead. And by what I mean with that is that it's such a way in which, and this is not every church that's not Calvinist, of course, but I'm saying this is what seems to be common, especially in our culture. And what that is, is rather than emphasizing the truth of the word, what the pastor does is he em- he puts the emphasis on mankind and how great and how much potential he or she has. And then he sprinkles it with Bible verses that teach how to be good and make someone feel good about it. I just listened to a sermon last week even where the pastor was preaching through First Peter and in verse one of that book, depending on the translation you have, Peter writes that you guys, that he writes to these chosen exiles or these elect exiles And rather than dealing with the text and the doctrines that are taught from it, he just made people feel good. And he said, hey, you're, you're chosen, you're valuable, and it was all about the people rather than the kindness of God toward us in Christ, which is what it should have been about. He sounded like a motivational speaker and not a preacher. And that sort of thing is common in the opposition to what we call Calvinism today. It's a downplaying of doctrines which instruct us and inform our worship and life in favor of what amounts to like self-help talks. And you guys need to be discerning. I talk about that all the time. You need to be discerning about what it says. You need to be checking everything back against what God's word says. So the plan for this weekend is basically just to walk through these statements and the, re- and the rejections of the canons, making comments here and there, But because of the length of them, we won't have time to hit every one of them. And so just a little bit more introduction first, some history. The canons are broken down into four sections, actually. And each section is a response to what the Arminians were saying the Bible taught. But from these four sections, you could identify what we call the five points of Calvinism, more popularly known as the doctrines of grace or that acronym. Does anybody know it? TULIP. TULIP total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Some of those are actually not the best titles for the doctrine. There could be better ones, but it does form a nice little acronym that's easy to remember and to help you think about what it's supposed to teach. But I should also say that Reformed theology is much more than those five points. And in fact, the acronym TULIP wasn't even used until 1913, And it wasn't even popular until 1963 when a book on the Doctrines of Grace was published under that title. And the canons, though, they're more detailed than what Tulip allows for. But before we look at the points made in the canons, I want to provide some history of the issue. So there was this man named Jacobus Arminius. When we think of Arminians, we're not thinking of people from Armenia. It's named after a guy named Jacobus Arminius. And he was born four years before Calvin. John Calvin died in 1564. So they never even met, I would think. <clears throat> Arminius became a professor, and he taught what we call Calvinism. And he even sat under John Calvin's theological successor, a man named Theodore Beza. But when Jacobus moved to Amsterdam to pastor a thriving congregation, he was charged with defending what the Bible taught through the Belgian Confession. And during that time, he had a change in his views. And in his prominence, his teaching and his views spread. And when he died in 1609, students of his went on and published what is called the Remonstrance in 1610. So this whole debate of Calvinism versus Arminianism happened after John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius had already died even. And Remonstrance, what it means is a forceful protest. It has five points in it. They were seeking to reform what was believed and recaptured at the Reformation. And the only reason we have the five points of Calvinism today, it would seem, is because they were drafted to respond to these five points of the Remonstrance. Remember I said earlier that what passes off as the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism today isn't quite the same as, it was, as what it was historically. Well, if you look at the Remonstrance, it's difficult to see what all the fuss was about, actually. The points of difference are subtle, but they're important. And so you have a copy of the Remonstrance on that packet. Point one of the Remonstrance affirms that God determined before the foundation of the world to save out of the fallen sinful human race those in Christ for Christ's sake and through Christ who by the grace of the Holy Spirit shall believe in his son, Jesus Christ. That actually sounds a lot like Ephesians. Ephesians 1 But it's not clear on what basis God determines the elect. Does God choose the elect so they might believe in Christ Jesus? Or does God choose the elect based on something that he has foreseen in them? Some knowledge that they shall believe in Jesus Christ. And we know from the argument that the Arminians chose the latter. According to part point two, Jesus, quote, died for all men and for every man so that he merited reconciliation and forgiveness of sins all for all through the death of the cross, yet so that no one actually enjoys forgiveness except the believer. Here we can see the conflict with what Dort would confirm concerning a limited or particular atonement. The Arminians believed that Christ merited forgiveness for everybody, but it only mattered or was only effective for those who would believe. At first glance, point three sounds a lot like total depravity with the Arminians affirming that, quote, man does not have saving faith of himself nor by the power of his own will, end quote, and more, they teach that we cannot do anything truly good without being first regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But the problem is they aren't clear about this inability, And does it require a work of God alone or cooperation between God and the man who doesn't have saving faith? In point four, we see the Arminian grace is not sovereign grace as the early church and Reformation taught it. Rather, they believed in what's called a prevenient grace. Wake up that guy. It was a come along your side grace that had power, that you had power over rather than a grace that brought you back From this from sin and death. Prevenient grace, as they understood it, is a grace that comes before the human decision to believe, but then it makes it possible for you to believe. But it doesn't guarantee it. In other words, they believe that God bestowed upon people grace so that He could save them. They just needed to make the first step and grab it. Or the second step even and grab it. Point five has a rather large if in it. It asserts that people have strength to strive against sin and Satan if they are prepared for warfare and desire his help and are not negligent. They were teaching that people who were saved could, through negligence, fall away and lose that salvation. And so that's the remonstrance just summed up. And so over eight years, there is discussion and searching of the word up until this synod. Again, it's just a religious meeting or conference. And it took place in uh, Dort in the Netherlands, in Deutschland. And it lasted from November 1618 to May 1619 and had pastors from Britain, from Switzerland, from Germany, and from Deutschland at it. And by January of this meeting, the Armenians were actually dismissed from the synod for failure to cooperate. And with the rest of the time, the canons of Dort were developed. And that is, and this is what Dort was meaning to accomplish. They were declaring, quote, what was in agreement with the word of God and accepted till now in the Reformed churches concerning divine predestination. And we'll talk about what that is. At the heart of it, though, is the defending of grace. A salvation that is of grace alone, or especially grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, those five pillars of the Reformation. And one last introductory comment. <laughs> my aim my, my aim this weekend is not to make you guys all Calvinists, if you're not already. John Calvin is not like standing at the door of your heart, knocking and asking to be let in or something like that. Maybe he's doing that to Steve. though no, I don't know. Yeah. I would I would personally describe myself as a Calvinist, but that wouldn't be the first thing I would say about my faith even. I, I do, of course, think it's right to be a Calvinist. I wouldn't be one if if I didn't think that, obviously. But my hope this weekend is to show how believers can look at God's Word and come up with statements on doctrine and theology and see the same thing, and we can see the same thing that they did in from years past. Because doctrine and theology matters. If we're Christian, we must care about doctrine and theology. And then we have to stand firm in it, right? That's what the Apostle Paul urged Titus and Timothy. And so if you look at the scriptures and come to different conclusions than Dort, and especially if it's from a sincere motivation to glorify Christ and to preserve a gospel that is grace alone, well, all right. We can be peaceable And we could be charitable to each other. But we need to care about these things. So let's begin to look at the first main point of doctrine. The first five articles will frame the debate for us. So we're just going to read them, okay? They're in your packet. And I'll have some comments throughout. This is the first main point of doctrine in the Synod, from the Synod of Dort, the Canons of Dort. And Article 1 is entitled, God's Right to Condemn All People. So says, since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death Romans five twelve, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been His will to leave the entire human race in sin and under the curse, and to condemn them on account of their sin. As the apostle says, the whole world is liable to the condemnation of God Romans three nineteen, all have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God Romans three twenty three. The wages of sin is death. Romans six twenty three. Then it's very clear, right? Just quoting Scripture. Article two, the manifestation of God's love. But this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten son in the world, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And they quote first John four nine and John three sixteen. Most of us are probably familiar with John three. 16, but let me read first John four nine. It's the same idea as John three sixteen. It says, In this is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Article 3 on preaching the gospel says, In order that people may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends messengers of this very joyful message to the people, and at times he wills. By this ministry, people are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. For quote, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless they have been sent? And that's Romans ten, fourteen and fifteen. four is a called a twofold response to the gospel. It says God's wrath remains on those who do not believe in this gospel, but those who do accept it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith are delivered through him from God's wrath and from destruction, and receive eternal the gift of eternal life. It's interesting to me that at this article, they don't actually cite any scripture, but it's clearly a biblical statement. Everyone loves to quote John 3.16 and memorize it. I would encourage everyone to do so. Even it's a good verse, but its context explains this very point that is made in Article um, 4. Listen to John 3.17-19. to 19. So the verses right after 16, <clears throat> verse 17 begins, And then the last verse of the chapter, if you look down to 36, if your Bible's open in there, if not, just listen to me. Verse 36 in chapter three, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So God's wrath remains on those who don't obey the Son. In other words, if you don't obey, you're not really believing the gospel. But for those who do believe, God's wrath has been lifted off them and placed on Christ on the cross. I'm sure the saints of Dort have these passages on their mind in Article 4. The same terminology is listed even. Then then Article 5, it's called the sources of unbelief and faith. The cause or blame for this unbelief, as well as for other sins, is not at all in God, but in humanity. Faith in Jesus Christ, however, and salvation through him is the free gift of God. As scripture says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. Likewise, it has, and this is Philippians 1.29, it, meaning salvation, and has, has been freely given to you to believe in Christ. It's speaking of the salvation that believers have so that's the first five articles. That And what these first five articles do is they frame the debate between this Arminian group and the Calvinist group. And I might add, in Article 5, the Greek makes Ephesians 2.8 very clear about what is not from yourselves and is a gift of God. It is the whole antecedent of that passage that was quoted in Article 5. In other words, according to the Apostle Paul, Salvation is by grace through faith, and all of it, salvation, grace, faith, all of it is not our works, but the gift of God to us. And so what these first five articles are getting at is God's right to save. The Lord God has the right to save people. It is his desire, his choice to do so. And what happens is we we often ask the wrong question, When we think about Christianity, we tend to think, why do some people get saved and others don't? And then from there, we offer all kinds of reasons. And sometimes people end up making excuses even. But what the canons do for us here is they remind us of the real question that should strike our heart. And that is, why is anyone saved? Why is anyone at all saved If mankind is is so rebellious, so evil, so intent on not seeking after God, who deserves it? I mean, if you attempt to be an honest person, I don't even need to tell you that you don't deserve it, right? You know that God is perfect and his standard is perfect, perpetual, and permanent obedience. And none of us even come close to that. We are all deserving even just by our own sins, punishment, and death. And further, Adam, the first man, his guilt was imputed to us. And so right out of the box, we need another Adam. We need grace that we might receive eternal life. And that's the issue before mankind, which Dort affirms in the positive. But that's not all that Dort affirms. It also affirms the love of God. And it speaks of not one, but two great gifts that God has given to the world. The supreme, the the greatest gift, and the most important gift that God has given was the sending of his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That was in Article 2. But also, the other gift from the Lord that is fueled by that first gift are those messengers that have charge of going to proclaim the good news of salvation, Article 3. We'll see later that the doctrine of predestination Does not turn God into some sort of a puppet master over our lives, but that he normally works through means. In this case, through other Christians, evangelists, and pastors, especially, as a means to save his people through the preaching of the gospel. And just think. I mean, that exact thing happens many times in the book of Acts, doesn't it? At the end of Jesus's life, before the ascension, he gives the great commission. And then we see in Acts, the disciples all gathered around at Pentecost. And then, uh, well, first, before that, Jesus ascends to heaven, and then they gather at Pentecost. And from there, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they go out into the world, and they preach the gospel. They preach the good news. And we see from that, that people desire to be saved. Others, of course, try to kill them for preaching the gospel, right? They put them in jail. But this is the means that God ends up using. Now, most Protestants don't have a problem affirming Articles 1 through 3. Progressive Christians will, but they're not actually Christian. We've been over that before. But we could sum up Sections 1 through 3 by noting that it affirms three things. Number one, man deserves God's wrath because of sin. Number two... God shows love. And three, God sends preachers to proclaim his love, among other um, things, the whole counsel of his word. Article four is not a big debate either, I think. It's essentially straight from John three. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever is not believing is condemned already. And when we get to point five, Dort really gets to the heart of the debate. There are some people who believe. And there are others who do not. That's obvious by experience, right? We all have family members and neighbors and friends, I'm sure, who don't believe. Maybe not everyone even in this room is believing in Christ. I don't know. And also, at the same time, we know other people who do believe in our church or even in other churches. And those who are lost are lost because of their sin. And those who are saved are found. They are that way because of grace. It's the gift of God. For those that have it, it's been freely given to them. Philippians 1.29 again. And so let's move on in the canons. This will be a little bit longer than the first section. my, my plan is to reserve comments here until we read the articles for the most part. But we're going to read articles 6 through 11. So article 6 is God's eternal decree. So it says the fact that some receive from God the gift of faith within time and others do not stems from his eternal decree, all right? for all his works are known from God to eternity acts fifteen eighteen ephesians one eleven in accordance with this decree, God graciously softens the heart, however hard of the elect and inclines them to believe, but by a just judgment. God leaves in their wickedness and hardness of heart those who have, he has not, who have not been chosen. And it is, in this especially it is disclosed to us God's act, unfathomable and as merciful as it is just of distinguishing between people equally lost. This is the well-known decree of election and reprobation revealed in God's word. The wicked and pure and unstable distort this decree to their own ruin, but it provides holy and godly souls with comfort beyond words. Seven is on election. Election is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Okay, so it's defining election for you. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, God chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race. Think Ephesians 1.4 and 1. 11 which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in common misery. God did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator. In other words, Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, right? Revelation thirteen eight. He's the head of all those chosen and the foundation of their salvation, And so God decreed to give to Christ those chosen for salvation and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through the Word and the Spirit. In other words, God decreed to grant them true faith in Christ, to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in fellowship of the Son, to glorify them. That's the golden chain of Romans 8.30. We'll look at that, I think, tomorrow. And a lot of those big words, maybe you're not familiar with some of them, We'll talk about them in detail and define them over the course of this weekend. God did all of this, we continue to read, in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. That's Romans 9 they're thinking of. As scripture says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him with love. He predestined us whom he adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace by which he freely made us pleasing to himself in his beloved, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. And elsewhere, and this is that golden chain, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Talk about that in two days in the morning. Article 8, a single decree of election. This election is not of many kinds but one and the same for all who were to be saved in the Old and New Testament. For Scripture declares that there is a single good pleasure, purpose, and God and plan of God's will. Think of Psalm 135, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Ephesians 1, 11. Also, and then it says, By which he chose us from eternity, both to grace and to glory, both to salvation and to the way of salvation, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in. Nine, Election is not based on foreseen faith. The same election took place not on basis of foreseen faith, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, or of any other good quality and disposition, as though it were based on a prerequisite cause or condition in the person to be chosen, but rather for the purpose of faith, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, and so on. Accordingly, election is the source of every every saving good. Faith. Holiness and the other saving gifts and at last eternal life itself flow forth from election as its fruits and effects. And the apostle says, He chose us not because we were, but so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, Ephesians 1.4. Article 10, election based on God's good pleasure But the cause of this undeserved election is exclusively the good pleasure of God. This does not involve God's choosing certain human qualities or actions from among all those possible as a condition of salvation, but rather involves adopting certain particular persons from among the common mass of sinners as God's own possession. As Scripture says, When the children were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, she, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, "Jacob, I have loved, but Esau I have hated." Romans 9:11 through13. And then Acts 13:14, eight, 48: All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Article 11: Election: Unchangeable. Just as God is most wise unchangeable, all-knowing, and almighty, so the election made by him can neither be suspended nor altered, revoked, or annulled. Neither can God make chosen ones be cast off nor their number reduced. In other words, friends, God does not make mistakes. That's, those are that's, that's a number of points on the doctrine of election. If we wonder what election is, that gives a pretty good summary of what election in the Bible is teaching. And so with this section, we're getting at the why. Why some people are saved and why others are not. The first five articles laid out the main principles. Here we get the reason for it. And some believe and some people don't. Why is that? What is the ultimate reason that some exercise faith and others remain in unbelief? Even when people consider That they come out of the same factors, the same culture, and the same context. When we get down to it, we're left with only two coherent answers. Either man or God. Why do some believe and some do not? It's either because the result lands on man's determination or lands on God's divine decree. And Article 6 makes this very clear. That the decision doesn't come from man's choice. Ultimately, but it comes from God's eternal decree. And the decree is... Ex- the de- God's decree is God's plan. It is his purpose that he set forth before even creating anything. And so the decree is executed in time in light of means, where God softens the heart and inclines the elect to believe, while other, other people he leaves in their wickedness. But note, it pointed out that all people whether elect or not, we equally lost. Think of how Ephesians 2, I like how it said it even, the common mass of sinners. That's they, They're up front with the reality that when people are saved, it's not because they're a little bit better than somebody else, but everyone was saved out of this common mass of sinners. And think of how Ephesians 2 begins. Ephesians 2 says, and you, so Paul's talking to the saints in Ephesus, saved people, those who received this letter, and you Were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So even people who are elect, they were equally lost. There was nothing good in them that God saw and based his choosing upon. It's up to God's freedom, which brings us to article seven through 11, in which a number of other important points and distinctions and observations are made. First, what I had just alluded to, um, election isn't based upon God seeing something in his omniscience. You know what omniscience means? It's like God's all knowledge, his complete knowledge. And so election isn't based on what God understands in his complete knowledge. God didn't save us because we were holy and blameless, but so that we should be holy and blameless, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. God's choosing isn't based on a prerequisite that we have to uphold in our freedom. And the reality already asserted in Ephesians 2 is that none of us could have met that requirement anyway. It is sheer grace as to why we believe the gospel. It's because of the good pleasure of his will. And that is in direct opposition to the Arminian view, which is based upon us meeting a condition to be elected. Second, we remember that God is immutable. That is, that God does not change. He's perfect. And for him to change would imply some sort of defect in him that needed correcting. And so then his, even his decree is unchangeable. Remember what Article 11 said, God's decree of election can neither be suspended nor altered, revoked, or annulled. And that, friends, is good news. That means that those who truly believe will never be lost. God is preserving you by his power, which is of much great comfort than th- rather than thinking that your salvation depends upon your strength and diligence to hold it. Third, election is just one thing. It's a single decree And this is related to the last point. The Arminians thought that election had different functions and different decrees. In a way, if we think about how those who reject this view of predestination, what they do is they really make it post-destination. Right? Predestination is a word that we read in the Bible, we're familiar with it. But the way the Arminians were teaching this and saw it, they turned it into post-destination. If election doesn't simply happen by God's free choice— But by something that he saw in mankind, then it's post-choosing, right? It's based on whatever he observed. And so rather, the decree to save is single and complete. God knows the end from the beginning. And we can be sure that God does not plan the end, the salvation of the elect, without also planning the means, the way and the time in which people come to salvation. Fourth, Article 10 points out something important that certain particular persons are elected. In other words, God's not choosing, when the Bible talks about election and predestination, he's not choosing kinds of people, or actions of people, or qualities of people, but he's chosen actual people according to the good pleasure of his will. And this is to say that God chose certain people according to the good pleasure of his will from among a group of people who were all equally rebellious and sinful at the end of the day. Yet, of course, you know, we would acknowledge that some sins are worse than others and some people do greater evil than others, but everyone, the Bible says, was a child of wrath by their nature until it is that they were saved. And so, what Dort, Dort is proclaiming is in step with what the Bible is teaching that is, that divine election is God's choice to save sinners. Not a choice to save people who had some good qualities in them to prompt him to move. After all, Romans 9.14 describes election as God having mercy upon whom he wills. And that means that God's decree to save must be based on equal footing. Otherwise, mercy is not mercy. It's favor. It's choosing someone because they were a little bit better. Some people deserved it more if it's not that way. And I don't don't think any of us want to say that we deserved salvation more than those who don't have it. I hope not, at least. And so we have to stop here for the sake of time. But tomorrow morning, we're going to pick it back up in the first point of doctrine. But let's pray, and then we'll get to um, the next part of it for tonight. Father in heaven, as we consider these deep things, we pray for understanding. We know that these are things that true believers disagree upon. And so we ask, Lord, that you would humble us and have us come to your word with a desire to know deep things and true things, and that you would give us clarity, God, so that we might honor you rightly. For you are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys. So